Welcome to Thinking Outside the Box with Gavin Rubinstein. Conversations between Gavin and the people he believes have trailblazed by thinking outside the box in their field, industry, or even just in his office. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got a very, very special guest here today. The absolute reigning, defending champion of Manly and surrounding suburbs. Michael Clark, thank you for making the trip. Can't tell you how much, you know, I appreciate your time because I know how valuable it is. I know how busy you are. Oh, good. No worries. And I think a lot of people are going to get value for this because there are a lot of dickheads in our industry. Let's just call a, a spade a spade. And when I think about who who are the gentlemen, and there are a few, you like to me are top of the list. Oh, thank you. Just your general style, what you've done, where you've come from, and how you do it. To me, you know, kind of just shines compared to the rest. So let's uh, let's get right into it. Thanks. Tell me a bit about how you started in real estate and mm-hmm. what you were doing before, like how you, you yep. got into it. Okay. So background originally, I'm a country kid from Orange, um, went and studied communications advertising at uh, Charles Sturt University in Bathurst. Country boys kill it in real estate. I don't Like I noticed like a theme. I don't know if it's like a, they just always seem to do so well. I, I mean, quite a few of them. Oh, look, I don't know whether it's a, it's a work ethic, whether it's, you get used to everyone knowing everyone. Yep. So I think like in Orange, if you, if you got something wrong, then everybody would know that you got something wrong. So like- <laughs> Like the world knows there's no hiding. Yeah, that's right. Like, I mean, Orange is, a, is, is not a small town anymore, but it, it, it was when I was growing up back in the time of the apostles. Mm-hmm. Um, but- um, I'm not sure whether it's that or what it is, but but I do think that because in a country town you learn that what you say and what you do needs to match up. I think yeah. that maybe gives country kids a bit of a competitive advantage because you got to you got to do what you say you're going to do. Love that you brought that up because like I was just having this conversation yesterday with somebody, and I'm not talking just real estate centric, but like it is so freaking rare to actually have someone do what they say they're going to do today. I find that frustrating. It shouldn't be. It frustrates the hell out of me. But like, I think that's one of the main points I, anyway, my own practice try to focus on. I mean, how important is that? Well, I think the interesting thing about it is, is um, I got into real estate from advertising principally because Cherie said, hey, that's Cherie's my wife and the other principal. We're going to talk about her. The the brains and the beauty. 100%. I just do what I'm told. That's why I'm going well. (laughs) I don't fight it. But I got into the business. A lot of people said to me, well, look, gee, there are a lot of people in your industry that don't give it a good name because they don't do the right thing. And I mean, I didn't really know the industry from Joe because, I, you know, my dad, dad's a teacher, mum was a librarian type thing. Wow. So growing up, there wasn't a solitary conversation ever about real estate. Dad was a teacher, mum was a librarian. Yes. In that, Orange. Yep. And that's a story in, in and of itself because um, I come from a family of seven kids and even by Orange standards, my parents were were of fairly modest sure. means. Dad, Dad's a, a very clever chap. I, I'm clearly at the uh, shallow end of the gene pool, but Dad's super, super smart. But having the seven of us kids, in desperation one time, he decided to go on sale of the century, which yeah. it was a big deal back then. Ron Burgundy, big deal. Right. Um, <laughs> and so Dad read and summarised a whole set of encyclopedias to go on this show. And anyway, he got onto it and he was he was incredible. He, he, um, you had to be on it effectively about 10 nights in a row right. in order to get the cars and the cash and da, da 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 And dad did that to 
effectively pre- try and prevent us from having to to go into hock. And anyway, he uh, blitzed nine nights again and again and again. The hosts of the show hated him because he wouldn't buy anything. So he was right. terrible for the ratings, right. right? Because he was so desperate to actually take it, uh, all. take it all. So he wouldn't buy anything in the gift shop and this and that and the other. And fi- got down to the final 60 seconds. There was a 60-second thing. People hadn't been within 25 points of him the whole time through. And sure enough, his competitor won this fame game thing and got 25 points magically, right? So all of a sudden, dad was even with his closest competitor. Right. Unfortunately, he panicked and lost by five points and came home with literally nothing other than a chandelier, right? And so mom and dad were, and I was only a kid at this stage. I was three or four years of age, but I still remember, you know, watching watching dad on Sale of the Century. And then in, in desperation, total desperation, mom went and got a job selling encyclopedias because dad had just read and summarized world book. And so mum got into sales and mum's unbelievable ability at selling encyclopedias. She became the number one Encyclopedia Britannica salesperson in the world. And okay, so, so selling's in your blood. That's where I was going with that. I, I learned how to sell very early on because as a kid, when other kids are out doing stuff, I was standing on an encyclopedia stand listening to my mother while reading a Tom Hopkins book, seeing her do stuff that I was reading about. So I could sell stuff, but I'd never considered real estate. So it was Cherie that said, hey, get into real estate. So you got your degree and then you had a job in advertising, did you say? Yes. Yeah, so I, I won a scholarship, an International Advertising Association scholarship over to a company called BBDO over in New York. Outside the industry, nobody would have heard of it. BBDO was also a pretty big deal back then. Uh, it was an unpaid scholarship, mind you, right? So, or internship. So it was very, very prestigious, but I stayed at a German boarding brother's house called the Kolping House. I was the only person there that spoke English. Right? How old <laughs> so, were you at this point? I was very early 20s because it was my final year of uni. Are you a Cherie at this point? No. No, 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 no. no. Okay. I hadn't met her at that stage. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, w- I went over there and I was working on the Mars account with Snickers and M&Ms and it was a big deal because I was there at Super Bowl time and BBDO had the Pepsi account, FedEx, a whole range of like really big accounts. So big I was boys. there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, so I used to sit in my little cubicle and watch all these superstars, like these massive basketballers and all these people just wandering by. You know, who's that? That was at the time the Chicago Bulls, like these people wow, just wandering wow, by and I used wow, to wow. tap the person beside me and say, who's that? You know, da, 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 da. anyway, so I did that. Then when, once I was finished with that, I uh, lived in New York for about six months, came back, won a scholarship with the AFA, Advertising Federation of Australia, and then went over to a company called BMF, did that. So you, were, were, you were like excelling. It's not like you were, you, you were setting up for a pretty promising career in advertising. On, on paper. The, it was, it was looking great because, you know, International Advertising uh, Association scholarship, two people from around the world were awarded that and I was one of them. And then AFA graduate traineeship, there were five or six of them, I think, in right. Australia. Right. So on paper, it was looking good, but the reality was I was hating it. Why? Because I was a suit. I wasn't a creative. So the suit, they were, what appealed to me about advertising was ironically getting the deal. And as an account, right? I mean, it all makes sense <laughs> retrospectively, but at the time I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> And so I got into the, this industry and, and as an account executive, I, had, I was about 15,000 steps below anything remotely related to getting a deal. Right. Which didn't kind of make the blood flow for you. And furthermore, I was basically in a coordinator role. And back then, before I'd met Cherie, I was hopelessly disorganized. Yeah. And so I was doing day in, day out, everything that I hated about life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cherie could see that. This is once I. Uh, once where did I met you meet? Her. Where did you meet Cherie? Give me, just tell me that story. <laughs> so I was working in BMF. I didn't know it at the, this stage, but Cherie was working as an architect for Lendlease around the corner on a building site. Cool. Okay. And anyway, I decided. Look, 
I wasn't particularly happy at work. They were a great agency and great company. It wasn't them, it was me. Sure. Um, and so I thought, well, look, I always want, when I decided to move to Sydney, I always wanted to take up uh, some kind of martial art. So around at the Piedmont Community Centre, they were doing Kung Fu. Yep. So I wandered around there one evening when they were doing Kung Fu and me in my disorganised days, wandered in at the absolute tail end of what had been the Kung Fu class and there were all these other people wandering in and I'd actually stumbled into a salsa dance class. <laughs> so I saw the blokes who were leaving, having bat- beaten and battered themselves, and I saw all these very, very different looking human beings wandering into a salsa dance class. They're and like, I thought, shit, don't worry about martial arts, I needed to learn salsa. I'm going to do this. And so I started doing that. Very early on, they ended up putting Cherie and I together as trainee dance instructors. So she was my partner. Then fairly soon thereafter, we were dating and I was, I was struggling in advertising. And then we ended up breaking up. I had a hex debt from university yep. and five grand on my credit card maxed out. So right. Right, living, renting a sunroom, right, <laughs> sleeping on a fold-out bed, driving a 1989 Mitsubishi Magna. Because of that, and I wasn't very happy in my life at that stage that Cherie said, look, it's not, this is not, you know, you're not happy, I'm not happy, let's go our separate ways. So, so broke she up. broke up with you? Oh, 100% she did. Not because of anything other than the fact that I was ha- unhappy in my life. You're probably and radiating I, off negativity. Yeah, that's right. You have an energy. You yeah. know? And so Cherie said, look, you know, never, we'll never say never, but at the moment, you know, you got, you got to, you got to get to a happy place. You got to get your shit you together. Got to, yeah, she was much more polite and much nicer about it than that. You know, um, but she was effectively, <laughs> go, you know, mate, come on. So in that six month period, I realised, you know what, if I'm going to win the girl, I got to get my shit together. And it's always a pretty or nice girl that changes a man's life. I got my shit together. I read every bloody rich dad, poor dad book under the sun. All right, I devoured that whole series. That was life-changing. Robert that. Kiyosaki. Kiyosaki changed my book. life. Yeah, he's great. So I read all of those yep. within a, a few months. You know, went from being an evenings person to being a mornings person, getting up, all that stuff, yep. right? It was like yep. a bloody Rocky theme in my yep. head. Get yep. the girl, get the girl, get the yep. girl, yep. right? Anyway, caught up with Cherie six months later. Um, randomly at a salsa club, right, as you do. Randomly um, for her, but you had that plan. Oh, 100%. <laughs> I mean, uh, because I'd become a planner by I that stage, that. right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and anyway, caught up with her and somehow convinced her to to go out with me again. We've been together ever since. Um, so then she said, hey, get out of advertising. You should get into real estate. Okay, and so I did exactly what I was told. So you had met up with her for the second time and got back together off the preface of not saying you were going to get into real estate, oh, but no, just no, you were no. getting your shit together. I was just getting my shit together. And yep. then she said to you, I think you should look into real estate. Yeah. At that point, you weren't questioning her. At the time that we first met, you know, I had this advertising CV that looked awesome and da 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 da, but she didn't realize that I was hating it. I've never been one of those downer po- people, by the yeah, way. It's, yeah. it's not like I was moping around, no. but I was just struggling. But by the time that we caught back up again, I'd, you know, a lot of self reflection and had decided, well, look, if it's to be, it's up to me. Um, if and- it's to be, it's up to me. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, um, uh, you know, convinced her somehow to to go out with me again. And then she said, well, look, you know, hey, she got me a book. That was John McGrath's You Don't Have to Be Born Brilliant. John McGrath, You Don't Have to Be Born Brilliant. He's a legend. You, your first real estate job was with McGrath, right? Oh, yeah. I was the second person that John ever hired without any real estate experience. Wow. First person went back to being a bouncer after six weeks. So that was a gift in and of itself. But, you know, I read this book of his right. in two days. I just devoured it right. and then tossed the advertising caper in and the following week. Went and interviewed at a couple of other places, interviewed with John McGrath, arguably the worst interview I've ever done. Tell I- me about that. Tell, tell me about your intention to jump into real estate, what you got from that book in terms of that spark that made you want to give it a go outside of obviously Cherie. 
And tell me about that interview with John McGrath. I'd love, I'd love to understand that. Well, the thing I lo- the c- central premise of that book I found brilliant, which was you can do anything you want. And it's not about the talent, it's about your work ethic and your application. Love. And for me, what I, what I had no idea about the real estate industry, I thought it was about talking to people and selling houses. Um, what I didn't realize is it was actually, if you get good at it, it's all about the learning. And, there, and I had no concept that there was so much learning out there if you wanted it. Oh, yeah. And even from seeing, you know, my mum as a kid and her, you know, through desperation becoming the world's best encyclopedia sales, but a funny little um, adjunct to that too. While I was at uni, I couldn't afford to put myself through. So I sold encyclopedias of a night time to put me through uni. And I ended up being the world's second highest selling encyclopedia salesperson, beaten by mum. So that's why there's no ego because I'm not even the best in my family. Anyway, so I read this book, couldn't believe that there was potentially potential to, to learn so much. Yeah. And I've always been one of those people, because dad's a teacher, I guess, I've always You've loved got learning. Work ethic. Oh, yeah, always loved it. Well, dad was working five jobs before mum went into selling encyclopedias to try and afford us. So I had the work ethic, loved learning through dad, knew what I was doing in sales. Yeah. And at, during that period of time, you know, once I'd read this book, I thought, right, I want to go for the, for the interview at McGrath. So I interviewed at another couple of a- agencies first to get some experience, sat down with John. Uh, before I'd even sat down, he said, look, what's the story of Michael Clark? What do you want to do? Yeah, give me these details. So you're sitting down. What, h- how old are you here? Uh, 24. How old are you now, Mike? 43. Fuck, you're young, man. <laughs> so I don't feel that, yeah. Okay, so he, John was John was on the tools. Oh, yeah, this is the whole point. This is the whole point. Right. So John, uh, at that stage, he only had the seven agencies. Wow. They were all, com- all company owned. Crazy. It was gold. It was absolute gold because right. the, you know, the top 10 agency in, in, in the company at that time were one of the, you know, some of the top 10 the agencies. Guys, yeah, 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 and, yeah, and yeah. I mean, they're still awesome. So for me, like, before I'd even sat down, and John, you know, you know what John's yeah, like. He's, yeah. he, he's not the kind of person who is ever deliberately intimidating. No. But I just read this book that I thought, oh, my God, this you is life-changing. So, yourself. Yeah, well, yeah, and yeah. before I even sat down, he said, so what's the story of Michael Clark? What would you say? And here I am in the sunroom, <laughs> right? I just said, what would be one of the best agents in the country? Then shat myself a bit. But <laughs> shut up. That's what I, that's what I said, right. and I might, that that was the only bit of the interview I think I got right. Yeah, because I was such a deer in the headlight. Right, and he must have seen something in me because I got the job. And then the other gift for me at the time was that because John had attracted so many high performing agents yeah. from other agencies, oh, it was a hotbed to perform. People, you look at it now, he killed. But also, they hadn't McGrath at that stage hadn't had as much experience training people with no effing idea. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I had yeah, no yeah. effing clue. Yeah, so you had no real estate, yeah, no, no, no real estate background. Right? So what I did was I, you know, I had to, had to learn from scratch pretty quickly. How'd you do that? Um, Run me through kind of the, the activities you focused on, what your plan was, and and kind of how you ran day to day, where you saw success, where you saw failure. Okay, so uh, it got uh, got given a job at um, the Manly office. Yeah. At that stage, I thought there was possibly a difference between a flat, a unit, and an apartment. Yeah. I remember catching up with John McGraw one time. He said, it's best for you not to call them flats. Probably best off saying an apartment or a unit or something like that. He was very polite about it. But um, so we called him an orange or flat. Sure. Right? There weren't many of, of them. But um, anyway, so um, starting in Manly, didn't know a soul other than Cherie. Why did I go to Manly? Because that's where Cherie's family were born and bred, right? And they, she wasn't going to Orange. Yep. Yep. And yeah. so started there. For the first 18 months, I was terrible. I didn't know what I was doing. Fortunately, though, I was desperate enough to ask other people, what How do you do? do? What sort of desperate? Like paint a picture for the people. Like when you say when you were desperate, what sort of desperation are we talking about? I think it was about the 22nd of July, 2006. 
and I pulled into the Manly Caltech service station on below empty in my Magna, that car I love. <laughs> Just as I pulled in, right, engine cut out. And I thought, my lucky day, how good is this, right? So I thought, look, before I actually put the petrol in, because I, you know, I was on the bones of my ass uh, financially, I thought, look, I'll double check how much I've got in the, my account. Because the worst thing for me, the thing that would have been more embarrassing is putting petrol in and not being able to pay oh, yeah. for it. Yeah. Like what an ignominious. You still had the hex debt. You still had the. Oh, all that stuff. Because yeah. remember, like even the AFA graduate traineeship, that was $32,000. Yeah. So once again, prestigious, but no money. So I never had any aversion to working hard for bugger all money. Sure. That I wasn't going forward financially. I went in there, checked my account. You take took about sixty bucks to fill the tank up. Um, checked the ANZ. I know, I know, I know. That's right. Yeah, uh, now it's a small home loan. Um, <laughs> but checked the ANZ thing, and I'd overdrawn. So I didn't even have money to put petrol in the tank. So walked out, pushed the car over to the side. Physically. Physically. Yeah. Stood there and just thought, Oh God, what do I do? Anyway, I called Dad to say, Dad, look, I've effed up. I've got, you know, I don't know what to do. And dad said, um, got to be careful not to get emotional about it. Um, dad said, look, don't worry, mate. I'll transfer you some money through. Yeah. Um, and, you know, my parents w- w- have never been the kind of people who've got money lying around. Sure. So the thing about it that, that you know, that, that cut me up was that he made it sound effortless. No worries, mate. I've got you. It's all good. And I knew it wasn't effortless. What a good man. Yeah. He's a, he's a good man, my father. And anyway, so I walked home that night. It wasn't far, but it wasn't fun. Right. And I just thought to myself, something's got to change very rapidly. And because I'd gotten out of advertising and into real estate, the one thing was I knew I couldn't fail. Point blank, there was no option. It was like burning the boats. How important is that? Because we, we particularly today, we see with some of the kids of the new generation, like, you know, I'm going to dip my hand in this pie and that pie and this pie. The and whole if side this doesn't, hustle thing. If this doesn't work, that'll work. And how important do you think not having a plan B is? Uh, well, for me, it was essential. Yeah. It I was didn't. for me too. I mean, I just, it was just never, a, I didn't have another option, so I had to make it work. Yeah. There's got to be some value in that. Right? 100%. And I think that, that um, look, the whole idea at the moment of people having a side hustle or whatever else, look, I, I think that that's, and no disrespect for people who have a side hustle, that's fine. But I found that if I was going to get really good at anything and particularly real estate, there was so much to learn that there was no way I could get good without a total and unrelenting focus on getting as good as I could as quickly as I could. Tunnel vision, baby. Don't yeah. have distractions. Yeah, totally. And so I then thought, well, shit, I also actually don't have the time to learn all the hard lessons myself. And so I had to work out a way to, that I could leverage from others. And a lot of people know about the idea of modeling or, you know, learning from others. And rep- right. back then, we're talking 17, 18 years ago, it's not like it was the time of Christ, but sure. it wasn't as popular as it is today. No. And so I pestered some of the top 10 agents in, in the company at the time. Um, at so McGraw. you've done 18 months, you're in desperation, now you're like, Something's got to change because I don't want to walk home every night and my car to break down. I've got to learn to get good. I'm going to pick the brain of the top performers. Yep. What sort of questions were you asking them and what sort of insights did they give you? Well, uh, black by the name of Simon Pilcher, who was over in the inner west at the time, he, I, I just liked the kind of real estate agent that he was. He was, he was a really good human. He yep. was really analytical, yep. knew his stuff, knew the market, but he also had just, he had the ability to be, to be able to say exactly the right thing at the right time. Yep. More than anything else, I just liked the fact that he was he was running a lot of business and he was a really good human being. Yeah. So I pestered him for six months to catch up. He finally agreed. And the idea was that I had to get over to the Leichhardt office right. by 10 to 7, I think it was 10 to 7 every Friday morning. Right. And we'd do scripts and dialogues. Wow. And the kicker was I had to have, uh, have a hot cup of coffee for him. 
on a Thursday night, every Thursday night, I, I, could, I couldn't sleep. I was so excited to be going over doing scripts and dialogues with this bloke who was writing a million bucks. So you obviously loved it too. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, from the, from the, like, the funny thing about it was even though it was, uh, I mean, Sheree must have seen something in me because back then I was not the catch, right? Yep. Not to say that I'm the big catch now, but I wasn't then. <laughs> um, the one thing was I knew from pretty much the first, that first interview with John that I loved the business. And so, yeah, what I loved do, it. What do you love about it? I love that I can learn something today that I can implement the following day that has an impact. The only limit is me. And I love the fact that, that at its heart, real estate's about learning and then implementing what you learn. That's what it's about. Product happens to be real estate. Sure. But the, real, the industry is about how much you can learn and how quickly you can implement what you've learned. And I love the fact that, in my opinion at least, the best part of real estate is effectively about you working on being a better human being. And so- I'm I wish, sh- ev- look, I wish everyone viewed it that way, man. Yeah. But- Unfortunately, they don't. But it, look, it, it would be nice if they did. But uh, I love I love even your outlook on it because it says wonders to the person you are. Okay. So you, you start meeting with Simon Pilcher. Mm-hmm. And then- Did that for 18 was- months and it supercharged me. And that was a penny dropping moment? Yeah. Because up until then, I had the work ethic, but I didn't have the faintest idea what I was doing. So I didn't know what to say to somebody when I got in front of them. Tell me the top three nuggets he taught you that changed your business at that point. How to prospect. Um, so uh, going instead of me calling somebody on a cold call list and mm-hmm. saying, oh, are you thinking of selling? Yeah. Right. He said, forget the cold call thing yeah. as such. If you've got OFI list, he said, only cold call. Yeah. If you don't have anybody else that you can call. Otherwise, if you've got an OFI list, for God's sake, focus on that. They're warm. And then he, then we talked about, okay, what do you say to somebody from a past OFI? Yeah. Right. And then I stumbled upon a buyer. Yeah. <laughs> it was a big deal for me. I actually found somebody who wanted to buy something. From an OFI I was book. so excited. Yeah. Right. Oh my God, I've got somebody who wants to buy a house in Harbour. something that's hot. Yeah. I know. Woo. Yeah. So then I called the streets and uh, right from this OFI book, hi, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, it's Michael Clark from McGrath. He's just wondering, I'm just trying to help someone. And I found the second that I said, I'm just trying to help somebody that would lower the barrier. Love that. And I said, look. That's gold, I'll, man, because I'm, I got to tell you that there are just, there's a way of language and a use of words that if approached correctly, make all the difference. Yep. And I love that. Yep. So anyway, um, I was just trying to help someone and then, you know, I got, I got started to open up some doors and then I got, you know, my first precious listing. And I mean, talk about that was the most important thing in my life at that stage. Sure. And I sold it. For the first 18 months, I was flopping around, yeah. um, not knowing what I was doing. But thereafter, I was teaming up. The very first listing I got was a $160,000 unit in Cremorne outside of my area. And I said to another agent from the company in that area at that time, I said, I'll give you all the commission. I just want to learn what you say. Ooh. And so, I mean, the, all of the commission, Ooh. about $12.50, mind you. No, but, but still, right. it's and like so just- I said, I'll give you all that, right? And um, God bless her. She said, that's fine. And But then what I did for the, for the second 18 months, I gave away half of my commission for every, and I just take a senior agent in, and yeah, I just say I all I, I care the, about. I did the exact same thing, and this is when you have the the love and the passion to learn and be better. Mm. That's what's at the forefront. Mm. And I question how many people today are willing to do that. They want to do the opposite. They want all the commission. Mm. They want all the commission, and they want to learn how to do it, as opposed to to that way. It's just incredible to hear that. I had an advantage though that I was used to living on the bare bones of my ass anyway, so I knew what no bloody money was. <laughs> I'll still have no bloody money, but I'll learn to to, to earn it. Right, so right. I did that, and it was it was principally I was smart enough to be dumb enough to just do what those agents did. Yeah. And the thing for me that remained really important was I found that every different agent, like every buyer and every vendor, they've they've got their own ideas on what makes 
or what constitutes success. You pick what you like. And so what I wanted to do, though, was make sure that I learned from the agents who I felt I wanted to emulate. So people like the Simon Pilchers of the world, uh, Wayne and Tina Vaughan, you know, from the, the Epping office over there. Yeah. Wonderful human beings who've since become great friends of ours, doing the right thing by people, but doing an amazing job. You know, Piers Van Hamburg, people like that. Great yeah, people, yeah, yeah. great P- agents. Piers is a good dude. I like Piers. Great guy. He's great good guy. Dude. He's good yeah, fella. so, you know, it's – but people like that, and there are too, too many to mention. Sure, but, sure, sure, sure. You know, yeah. So you so you leverage off some senior agents. Your view was half of the pie is better than no pie. You'll give away all the pie so long as you can get the knowledge and that you can learn. Yep. Flop for the first 18 months and then you leveraged off other agents for about how long? And then tell me the story how Clark and Hummel came about. So with my first big shimi- uh, big commission check, yep. um, bought an engagement ring, proposed to Cherie. Wow. She said yes and life improved again. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and How then, old were you when you got engaged? Uh, I was 26. Okay, so you guys dated like two years. Oh, on yeah. And off. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 26. To, no, no, no. I, we were, I was 20, 27 or 28. No, because we dated for four years. Okay, before, right, yeah, okay. yeah. It, was it took me four yeah. years to convince her to, to marry me. So I did that. Um, then I was at McGrath for uh, what, 2005 to 2011. Yep. And then that's when they were in the process of starting to franchise and do all that right, kind of thing. Right. So we, you know, and manly office still. Uh, Manly Office was about to get franchised. Okay. It, unfortunately for us at that stage, it um, oh, hang on. So Manly got franchised earlier, but it wasn't a, an, an option for us to be the franchisee at the time that that happened because that happened in 2006, 2007. Right. At that stage, I still had no clue. So right. it wasn't right. an option back then. Yeah. And then come 2010, 2011, still wasn't an option yep. for us. And Cherie had said, hey, look, you know, I think we could do things differently, not necessarily better, but differently. Yep. I was as scared as shit. So it was her idea to say, let's do this, Clark. For people who don't know, Northern Beach is manly. Clark and Hummel is it. They are the agency right now who are breaking all of the records. From my perception, and I'm not trying to claim I know manly intimately well, but from my perception, that top end of town is yours. You dominate it from a market share perspective. So just to give people, if they don't know, I'm sure they do, a bit of context, right? But that idea started... From her then. Oh, 100%. But you were writing pretty decent numbers at McGrath at this point, right? I was writing about 1.1, 1. 1, 1. Which, 1.2. Which, listen. Back, back then, then, that was big. That was big. That was big. People today, they don't realize. Like that was Back then, you would have been how old? 2011 would have been. So whatever that is. Uh, it was big money back then. I'm good, uh, at, I'm good at percentages, but not good at arithmetic. <laughs> yeah, so that was big money. Okay, so you were writing decent money. Cherie says, hey, I think we can do things differently. Mm-hmm. I would have been, been about 30. Right, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And and then what happened? Well, initially, I mean, she'd said to me uh, before she'd even gotten into it. So I, she got me into real estate. And then two years later, I convinced her to, to ditch architecture and join me in real estate. Uh, I went from being advertising to real estate. So that was fine. She went from architecture. It's uh, a big stuff. step backwards from her. She must really love you, man. Well, she must. Shout out to Cherie. Yeah, God bless her. Hooray. Um, but um, yeah, so she went from architecture into real estate. And, and she's working with you whilst you're at McGrath. Yes, she was. Yep. Yep. And so she got to see it. She got to see the business for what it was and how it worked and this and that and the other. And when when I was having discussions with mum about what a trial close is over the dinner table as an 11, 12-year-old kid, yep. Cherie's family, she's an architect and her father is an architect and developer right. um, and or former developer. It wasn't by that stage, but they were talking property. So Cherie's very steeped in property as an architect, you yep. know. And so Cherie got to see it from that uh, from that perspective. And she said, look, I, I think we could, you know, uh, we could give it a shot. We explored what we felt were the opportunities at, you know, at McGrath at the time. And unfortunately, 
that wasn't an option for us at that stage. And so we considered it for a whole, we did had a look at a whole range of different other, uh, um, other options and decided to start Clark and Hummel from our sunroom. What year did you start Clark and Hummel? Beginning of 2012. And you started just you and her? Yep. Paint me a picture of what it looks like today. So we've got 45 people working with us, which is great. Did close to one and a half billion last year. And, you know, we'll see how we go this year. It's going really well. Wow. And you've got property management business? Yep. Yep. Just the one office? Yeah, just the one office. Any plans to open more? Oh, look, I mean, the reality is that all of our growth has always kind of been, they use the word organic. It's always been like that. Though Cherie is tremendously strategic in relation to where we're headed and all that kind of stuff. From our perspective, we're happiest when the people that we've got working with us are really happy. And when that grows, it'll grow, you know, but, but we've got no interest to open 20 or 30 offices yeah. or even 10. We just, we're, you know, we know that the people working with us are happy, we're happy, and we'll continue to grow as we grow. Biggest lesson that you learnt by leaving a big brand and starting your own? We underestimated how much a brand actually is important. Yeah. Um, and that I say that with embarrassment because my background's in branding and advertising. Yeah. So we underestimated that. that. So you're saying it was a struggle for the first first. It was always going to be yeah. um, because we were, un, we were an unknown quantity, yeah. right? Brands exist for a reason. Yes. You know, I know a lot of people say, oh, well, look, you know, uh, brands don't sell property, people do. Sure. Yes, but the brand can open the door. 100%. And the brand gives people a whole range of, if it's if it's a good brand or even a bad brand, it gives people an understanding before they've met you, before the they've spoken to you. Level of comfort. 100%. And that's why, that's why businesses, billion dollar businesses all over the world, they have brands. Yeah. yeah. And so we underestimated that, but we also underestimated how well we'd go. We budgeted to sell 25 million in the first year yeah. and sold 117 million in the first year. But you know, there's nothing quite like desperation to Best. to to, to motivate you. And and it, we were lucky because we got into the business in 2012 when the market was going backwards. Yep. And so three of our first six sales were from expired campaigns that others couldn't sell. And you sold them. Yes. And so every single time we you did started that, started to make noise. The marketplace right. noticed these guys. It helped. Like you say, yep. they're doing something different, but it's working. That's right. What were the top five points you focused on? to build your brand? Because back then, 10 years ago, Clark and Hummel wasn't a brand. Now, That's right. it was it's, a a, it's a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> so what 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 did you focus on? What, what was top priority? What was like, this is what we need to do in order to get to where we want to be? First thing, raving fans. That is the key. I say that all the time. It's the reason why it's a cliche. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And we wanted to be Teflon. That's what we talked about. Yeah. Have to be Teflon. Yeah. Every listing that we get, have to nail it. Doesn't mean it has to be sold. Ideally, if it does, but like, for example, if you're selling for an 85 year old who has decided all of a sudden that she wants to die in her ho home instead of you sell it for her, yeah. then with your love and blessings, you stay home, you know? Yeah. But we wanted to make sure that if right, every listing that we got that was saleable and they were motivated, we nailed it. And yeah. that's, what, that's what I feel we did. Right. So what it meant was that every single time somebody came across a sale of ours, they could say, oh, I wonder what happened there. And then we built, right, we were very specific in relation to our branding and I had an advantage in relation to that because of my background. Yep. Um, and by that stage- So you designed the brand? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, well, Cherie and I, and yeah. and, uh, and so we were uh, meticulous with that, but it was principally Is that around- that hard to do? Well, I've got a degree in it, so I'd like to think it's not something that you can just- Sure. You know, um, but I mean, if, uh, Cherie and I were laughing the other day. Her degree, her architectural degree, mm -hmm. comparatively to my communications degree, mm -hmm. uh, I had a ball of a time at uni. Cherise right? was a real degree, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and that yeah, was cool. yeah, totally different things, you know. Like, um, so yeah, I, th I think the branding was very important. But by that stage, I'd done enough, and I'd been in the industry long enough to know how to do a listing and a sale, and to do that well. We had the work ethic. It was difficult, 
but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, ain't, ain't anything worth doing that's easy, in, in my view anyway. Okay, so raving fans is number one, Teflon number two, what else? Opening a, a, a business is very much, it's, it's a personality amplifier. If you're good, you're bad, or you're indifferent. If you're lazy, if you work hard, if you're if you don't care about branding, if you're sloppy, if you're meticulous, if you're an asshole, yep. whatever, whatever yep. you are as a human being, yep. it massively amplifies. Yeah, yeah. And so we had to continually and really increase our work on ourselves. Yeah. Because we weren't necessarily leaders when we were back with a franchise and didn't need to be, but then we had to work about work out out how to be a good leader. You know, and so we also massively underestimated how difficult it would be in order to be able to lead people. Have yep. people who would want to be led, yep. you know, and work with them. Um so that's a uh, you know, a third a third learning. Don't ever underestimate how much you need to work on yourself. Sure. Fourth learning it's all well and good to get a listing and a sale, but if you don't have the other parts of the business uh, uh, working well, and this is even as an agent within a business, sure. right? Everybody wants to do the glamorous listing and the selling, and that's all fine and dandy, but if you're not managing the back-end part extremely well. Is that like the magic 50? Is that is that all that sort of stuff, or is that also the operations side of things? It's the operations side right. of that. It's the yeah. whole shebang. Yeah. Um, and I think like a lot of agents are quite blessed to be able to work as part of a brand, so they don't have to worry about the brand, and they don't have to worry about a whole range of dis- systems and things like that. We had to do that. And if I hadn't had Cherie, who is infinitely more business brain than I am, I would have failed. Mm-hmm. I would have been like so many others who could list and sell and went back under, Just you know. Just because you're a good agent does not mean you're a good business person. Well, the funny thing about it with me, though, is I knew I wasn't a good business person. Yes. And so it was Cherie basically saying, hey, 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 hey. And I remember when she first said when we were very early on dating, she said, look, it's it's, it's my dream to one day open a business with, with my partner. Wow. I looked at her like a scared rabbit. I'm like, I, not because, not be, it was partially because I thought, well, I'm not a business person. So what do I, I don't know what to do there. We're lucky that we both have such different personalities. That was the magic pudding. The fact that I loved, you know, I loved listing and selling. Sharika could always list and sell as well as I could, sure. or she got to that and stage. And she still lists and sells? Oh, 100%. Absolutely. She's just like superwoman. No wonder you're so infatuated with her. That's right. Yeah. Cause she, she can really do it does all. it all, right? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Who's a better agent? Her or you? Oh, her, her any day of the week. She just allows me to focus more on that. That's the point. She allows me to focus on that and she'll list and sell when she wants to yeah. and does so. You've got three kids? Yeah, three kids. Three, yeah. Yep. It's like anything. I mean, um, she, she casually walked into the office the other day having just, you know, sold another place for roughly 20, as you do, you know, and she's every bit as capable as I am. However, she's much better at the strategic direction of the business. So that's where her energy is kind of A lot of the time strategic direction and making sure that from a financial perspective and a strategic perspective, the business is going in the right direction. Yeah. And then she lists and sells when she wants to or when people say, I don't want Michael or I don't want somebody yes. else, yep. I want you. Yeah. Yeah, she's about, absolutely. Yeah. Agents, do's and don'ts. What does an agent need? Top three things to focus on to be successful today. Big three. Work ethic. Yep. Trainability. Yep. And ability to be able to put into practice what you've learned the application of the right, training. Right. You can, I'll get, there are people who want to learn all day, every day, and they don't implement any of it. That's yep. fine. Yep. You see them. They're the ones taking the most avid notes, da 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 yep. and then they'll go home and they'll put the book away and they'll yep. think that they've done it. So, yeah, you've got to uh, – they're the top three. What not to do. I think we, we do have to be very, very careful about ego in yep. this business. It's yep. just one of those things where because we get kicked in the head so many times, let alone the teeth, you get some you get a vendor who says, Oh my God, you walk on water and it's almost a defense mechanism where you can you can start to believe your own rubbish. 
Don't yep. get too high on the highs. Don't get too low on the lows. Because you get the opposite too, right? Yep. yep, that's right. So you're not nearly as good as somebody thinks you are. You're not nearly as bad as somebody thinks you 100%. are either. Yeah. Yep. Somebody once said, "You people massively overestimate what they can achieve in 12 months and massively underestimate what they can achieve in five years. So I think a real failure path is people thinking that they can do so much so quickly when in actual fact, it's the mundane shit that you don't want to do. And the, this idea that you can do the best bits of it, the 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 marrow of uh, putting a deal together and the negotiation, you know, to do that all the time, that's rubbish. We we pay the price that of doing the ninety percent of the time, the ninety percent of the stuff that we don't want to do to put us in a position to be able to negotiate that twenty million dollar deal. Yeah. To be able to get that buyer from, you know, sixteen million up to twenty two and a half or twenty three or twenty, but like you, you do all that stuff so that you've got the ability. You know, my favourite quote at the moment is, "Luck." is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. opportunity. Love it. Amen. Love it. Michael Clark, I appreciate your time. You're an absolute gentleman. You're welcome, mate. And um, I look forward to continue to watch. Proud to call you on, mate. Thank you, brother. Thank you for listening to Thinking Outside the Box with Gavin Rubenstein. Subscribe now for future episodes.